This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. I want to take a second to thank Gadgetflow for sponsoring this episode. Guys, if you are looking for an awesome platform to get your crowdfunding project in front of over 25 million people per month, you should absolutely check them out. They are the third largest Indiegogo partner and listed on Kickstarter as experts. And not to mention, they've worked with over 4,000 crowdfunding projects since 2012. Their platform also now supports AR and VR, which I thought was a really cool add-on. To find out more, you should definitely head over to thegadgetflow.com slash submit to list your crowdfunding project today, but be sure to use coupon code UNCUT10 to get 10% off your services with them. Hey guys, this is episode 113 of Crowdfunding Uncut, and today we have Jason Gaynard on the podcast, but you shouldn't be surprised because last week's interview with UJ Ramdas, where he explained that he actually used Mastermind Talks as a launch platform for the 5-Minute Journal, so it's a... It's really interesting because when I, I asked UJ um, last episode, like how we launched it, he's like, well, Mastermind Talks. I'm like, well, this is very uh, awesome because tomorrow I have Jason on the show. And uh, I, while this interview and Jason may not have um, the crowdfunding background that is common on the show, um, what I really love about Jason is, um, first off, he's the, the founder of Mastermind Talks, which is an by invite only, high level, exclusive entrepreneur. Um, mastermind event that happens every year. And he's also the author of Mastermind Dinners. And I won't get into the story just yet. I'll let him tell that. But um, Jason created a very successful company, Mastermind Talks, that has true impact um, when he had a chance to do entrepreneurship over again. Um, Prior to Mastermind Talks, he had run a very successful business out of Toronto called Ticket Canada, where he scaled it up to $5 million and realized a few years in that he had created something that did not make him happy. And so he created Mastermind Talks as a way to truly um, meet his own needs with what he wanted to do in the world, but also tap into a niche. And um, Jason is one of the best networkers I've ever seen in person live and spoken to. And I just think, um, there's gonna be a lot of value coming from this, from his story of, of self-discovery and, uh, someone who's on the entrepreneurship journey on business, uh, not the first business and not his first rodeo. So Jason, I'm really happy and stoked to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it's, uh, it's good to hear that you had UJ on yesterday because <laughs> UJ obviously is a very good friend who's had success on Kickstarter and similar to the kind of what we were talking about offline. Um, you know, actually legitimate, you know, seven figure business, very healthy business, but they still use Kickstarter to this day, um, as a vehicle to launch their products. And what's fascinating with his interview was we, like, after I did my, um, my stalking of him online, he didn't use five minute journal to launch on Kickstarter. He, he used Kickstarter for subsequent launches. So he's, he's a business that saw value in that, um, later on in his product life cycle as well. But, yeah. um, how did you meet UJ? Oh God. Uh, so we, I was in a, in an organization called the entrepreneurs organization, um, in Toronto. And, um, it's a group that basically it's more veteran, I guess, entrepreneurs, your business has to do seven figures in order to, to join, but that's the only barrier to entry that they have. And when I was in the group, I had a friend of mine, um, where I met a guy, I heard a lot about him and finally connected with him named Alex Icon. 
Um, and he's actually UJ's business partner now uh, in Intelligent Change and Five Minute Journal. But Alex has a uh, YouTube channel called Luxie Hair. And I uh, wanted to get to know Alex more because the organization that I was in it was in more older kind of entrepreneurs. Um, and I didn't necessarily jive with too many of them. But Alex and I were, we just really hit it off. So connected with him. And then he's like, you have to meet a good friend of mine, UJ. And UJ back then was a, a hypnotherapist. He was not an entrepreneur. He was an aspiring That's entrepreneur. Yeah. Hypnotherapist? Uh, Doesn't yeah. surprise me. Yeah. So he... Uh, he aspired to be an entrepreneur one day because he saw what, you know, Alex was doing and that kind of stuff. But um, um, when I met him, he was just, uh, you know, still a hypnotherapist. And he was probably for a good 18 months to two years before him and Alex came up, came up with the idea of the five minute journal. So, um, so yeah, we just were friends in that early process. So I was able to see UJ go from aspiring entrepreneur to early stage entrepreneur and see that, that idea come to fruition. And then, uh, as he made mention, he kind of launched that mastermind talks and nobody knew how it would go. I mean, we didn't think it would go bad. We didn't think it would go this well either. Um, I would have, I would have tried to squeeze my in and try to invest, try to squeeze my way in and invest if I knew it was going to be this good. Um, so yeah, ultimately they launched and they've been a huge, yeah. I mean, you know, guys listen to episode 112 if you want more um, in-depth information of that. But what I didn't ask him was like, and this would be cool for you to tell the story. How did he launch it? Like he came to you and said, do you mind if I launch that? Like, what is that? No, there wasn't even a discussion around it really. I mean, the, the, basically I was, I was doing our first mastermind talks event. I know what I was doing. Um, ignorance, confidence, and hard work can go a long way sometimes. So, um, because of that, the, yeah, the planning process was, was very interesting from an outsider's perspective. And, um, a lot of people didn't think it would be a success because I didn't know necessarily what I was doing. Um, however, I knew that they were getting ready to launch this five minute journal and again, they didn't know, like the, I know they, they believed in the concept, but nobody knew it would take off the way it did. Um, so we were just probably like in, in conversation and, and they made mention um, that they, cause I wouldn't have, I definitely wouldn't ask, but they would, they would have offered to, um, to give a five minute journal to everybody in attendance uh, at the event, which was about 150 people. Um, and which is what they did. And it got in the hands of Tim Ferriss and Tim, um, became was just a huge fan of it and especially it was it was it was impactful for Tim because um the five the the four hour work week had a really big impact on Alex and UJ. Um so it was almost like this five minute as it was almost like this four hour work week kind of muse business. So Tim took a liking to it, ended up buying like twenty five hundred copies um for these um a subscription box that he was offering at the time and he's become like a, a power user i mean he's mentioned it on his podcast which has an enormous platform obviously like they have over two billion downloads now um not two billion yeah no actually yeah. is it two billion it wouldn't be two million uh, oh, no, yeah, it would be actually two billion if you go on their website it's two billion downloads is it for tim ferris i'm just trying to it's got a million because I mean 100 million wait crosses 100 million downloads but that was November 10 2016 it's got to be 2 billion then yeah it's a huge number basically he has an enormous platform because I know like other people who do like a couple million a month so and Tim is one of like you know on iTunes he's like always top 10 he has two podcasts in the top 10 consistently now so um anyways all that to say He's been giving the five minute journal a ton of free PR. Uh, I mean, advertising on his show is insanely expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, he's dropped um, the the idea that he uses the five minute journal 
I think over a dozen times easily on his podcast. Uh, so that has just continued to fuel, um, you know, the growth of the five minute journal. Um, so that's kind of how they, how they launched. I love that. And like whenever I go out to coffee or meet someone new and Tim Ferriss comes up in conversation, I am still floored when someone doesn't know who Tim Ferriss is. Mm. Well, he's well known, very well known in a very small space. It's interesting because it's, uh, uh, sometimes we can live in a bubble, uh, and he's definitely, I mean, he's getting more mainstream. Yeah. He's not celebrity status as of yet, but um, he's moving in that direction. I mean, he's obviously a great guest on his podcast and, and that kind of stuff. So uh, he's definitely slowly hitting mainstream, but it's, it's yeah. I mean, you asked me three years ago, I would have still thought that Tim was like a huge deal. Um, when yeah. We, in the grand scheme of things, he wasn't just a big deal in our circle. So No, he's like, he has a cult following in our circles. Oh, huge. He's probably one of the most, not only an enormous platform, um, but by far one of the most engaged um, audiences. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm part of that. I'm, I'm, you know, I know Tim well, but I'm anything that he puts out, he recommends, I buy, you know what I mean? Like it's not uncommon. The the, the level (laughs) of influence he has over his community is second to none. Yeah. So let's talk about you. Um, I'd love to get a sense, more sense of mastermind talks because A, selfishly, I want to take it, but (laughs) um, it's an by invite only entrepreneur event. So can you tell me how you pick the entrepreneurs? Like, do you do it for variety? Do you do it based on business size? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So um, I didn't want to do it based on business size initially because I I belonged to the entrepreneurs organization before, which I talked about. And um, their vetting process is based purely on our, on revenue. Um, and that's problematic for, for two reasons. One is um, you could have a business that does $1.2 million a year, but you spend $1.5 million to keep the, the doors open. So it doesn't necessarily revenue and profit are very different. Um, so um, that's one factor. The other factor is that um, the misalignment of values. I mean, you can have a $100 million business but not be a good human being, you know what I mean? Or like lack integrity or those kind of things. Um, so to me, I only wanted to surround myself with people who I liked uh, ultimately and people who I would, you know, looking, looking now, I mean, I spend most of my year um, with the, the people that we bring to mastermind talks. So we have 150 people in attendance. I'd easily have 135 of those people to my wedding. I mean, these are people that we vacation with as a family. Two weeks ago, my, my, we, road trip down to Columbus, Ohio to spend a weekend with one of our, one of our alumni and his family. Like it's, these are some of my favorite people on the planet. So for me, the initial uh, vetting process was they had to be an entrepreneur and the other filter, the most important filter that they had to um, overcome was at the end of a conversation, if it was a first time interaction, whether it be over the phone or in person, I'd ask myself, would I want to have dinner with this person? And if the answer was no, I didn't care how big their business was. It was, I, I wouldn't have them. And, uh, you know, truth be told, for the first event, we refunded $43,000 in paid tickets from people who uh, bought a ticket, had a phone call with them, and then assessed that they probably weren't the right fit. Um, and I didn't know if that level of curation would, would pay off. I mean, people thought it was crazy at the time because it was a quarter million dollars in debt before I even started the business. Um, so they're like, you're, you're nuts to, to be refunding money. But I had built a business before in the e-commerce space um, where you know, you have no control over the people you serve. And I ultimately, because I hated the industry uh, or discovered that I hated the industry, I started to hate the people that I served as well. And I started to sabotage money-making opportunities. I mean, people would call 
with their credit cards in hand to place orders and I wouldn't answer calls. I would avoid people. And I'm like, this is probably not a good way to conduct business. Um, so that's why I ultimately kind of got out of that business and I didn't want to make that same mistake again. So I want to be very selective around the people that I serve. You just give me an idea. I'll share it later, but (laughs) (laughs) everyone's like, wait, what? Yeah. Um, I think you just made me real, or maybe I should, no, I'll tell you. you Share if you want. It's your show. Um, uh, the, we're changing our application process for people we work with, Mm. um, because I, I don't want to build a large agency. Yeah. What fires me up is is clicking with clients. It's not necessarily the sure. product, but if I get someone on the phone and I just like, it's not really a fit. I'm just, there's like my motivation. You just feel it in your gut that it's just not the right fit. And you have to Absolutely. look at your motivations for why am I taking this client on? Is it for monetary purposes or is it because I really freaking love them and want to work with them? Yeah. So I think it's important to do a gut check and actually sure you may have sabotaged some of the things you've done, but that's, it's not a sign that you're a failure as an entrepreneur. It's like your gut, your body's telling you something and you should listen to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, we, I mean, for context, we've done five events. We've never spent a penny on traditional advertising. We never did Facebook ads, any of that kind of stuff. The main reason the, our main kind of vehicle for growth is uh, is referrals, is nominations. Um, and I can guarantee you, if I was in service of people I didn't necessarily enjoy or weren't my best friends, I wouldn't go above and beyond for these people, um, you know, when it comes to delivering my product or service. Um, and because I go above and beyond, it creates word of mouth. Um, so to me, it's, it's, it's harder. To, it's a harder decision initially to be very selective with who you serve. But ultimately, it pays off dividends in the end. Because again, you know, we don't spend a penny on marketing. Our, you know, our ticket price is ten thousand dollars a ticket. It's a high price point event. I mean, it's. I have a lot of friends in this space that they they worry, um, and rightly so. It's hard to fill an event, um, but they, there's there, there's a lot of work to to fill these events and these fancy marketing campaigns and all that kind of stuff. And our conversion rates on on invitations eighty one percent. Um, and again, it's because we've, we've built such a strong brand and such a strong sense of kind of word of mouth, um, that the event really, by the time I hop on the phone with somebody, they're, they're already sold. Yeah. And I mean, the reputation, uh, reputation precedes you as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to, to step back a few years into the e-commerce business that you yeah. ran. Um, I assume you were speaking about taking Ticket Canada? Yeah, Tickets Canada, yeah. Tickets Canada. Okay, cool. So can you um, just walk me through starting that and the monster that turned into? Sure, yeah. So basically, um, I really quickly, I dropped out of high school. I started a service-based business. Uh, realized that service-based businesses can be uh, difficult to, to scale. Um, it's just a different skill set and generally a lot more work. Um, so I pivoted into an online product business, which was the ticketing business, which I grew to about six, $7 million a year over four years with no outside investments. I was traveling the world, making a ton of money. With all that money and all that free time, I started to ask myself questions like, why am I here? Will I be remembered? How many people show up to my funeral? And I was not happy with the answers I was giving myself. And I also discovered at the time I was earning 22 times the national average income, which was bothersome to me because I'm like, I'm not 22 times happier than the average male. I'm not 22 times healthier. Uh, I mean, three years prior at the age of 23, I had kidney complications because of a failed business partnership and just from the stress from that. Um, so I realized that money and happiness scale very differently. And um, I could have sold that business. I definitely could have sold it, but it would have required me to stay in it for another year to 18 months. For earn out. Um, 
and I couldn't do it to myself. I'm one of those type of people that once I have a level of awareness around something or I know like a truth, I can't shy away from it. So um, I became comfortable with the idea of scaling that business down to zero. Um, ultimately, I should have like a little bit of money left so I could start something new and have a bit of a runway. Uh, I always say it was like the death of a thousand paper cuts. I mean, um, you know, I had B players in the business who had C players under them. The minute I decided to scale the business down, I detached from the business. So the business kind of cannibalized from the inside out. Um, and yeah, I just took my, my eye off the ball. And then on top of that, while we were scaling downwards, two things happened that were beyond my control. There were really the nails in the coffin, um, that landed me a quarter million dollars in debt in August of 2012. And, uh, yeah, when dust settled, I didn't know, I mean, I had no business. Um, you know, I always, I was bankrupt on every level. I mean, emotionally, spiritually, financially, um, I really didn't have much of a peer group at, at the time. This is actually when I first kind of met UJ and, and Alex, oddly enough, they were actually like, you know, looking back on, on all of my relationships, I don't have any relationships that are longer than four years old. Um, and people look at me now and they're like, you know, Forbes called me one of the top networkers to watch and all this kind of stuff. But all my relationships have happened in the last kind of four years. Um, so back then I didn't know anybody. Um, and there's a saying that when one door closes, another one opens, but it sucks to be stuck in the hallway. And it was a very dark hallway at the, at the time for me. And um, ultimately I started, somebody gave me a ticket to go see Seth Godin in New York, uh, or they posted about it on Facebook and I had no other obligations at the time. So I decided to take it and didn't even know what the workshop was about, but I was a big fan of Seth. Um, and I went to it and it turns out the theme of it was the connection economy and how there's huge value connecting like-minded individuals. And again, because I felt so, so isolated at the time, um, I started doing these things called mastermind dinners where I'd invite eight entrepreneurs up for dinner with the core focus of connecting them. And the first one I did, I almost canceled two hours prior. Cause I'm like, nobody's going to see value in this. They're going to think I completely wasted their time. But thankfully, it turned out to be a big success. And uh, I got clarity that connecting people was something I wanted to do to some capacity uh, for the rest of my life and not as a business because I actually wasn't monetizing these dinners. Um, I was paying for them out of pocket with the little money I had left on my credit card. And people thought it was crazy and rightly so. Like I didn't know how I was going to make rent the following month. Um, but to me, I was pretty sure I was going to have to declare bankruptcy. And my reasoning was that the bank could take my car. They could take whatever measly assets I had left. But they couldn't take my relationships. Investing in my relationships was the safest investment I could make. And um, a few months later, I had an opportunity to do an event with Tim Ferriss that kind of fell in my lap. And I just saw it as a chance for me to do what I do in these dinners on a larger scale and didn't plan to, to make a business out of it by, by any stretch. I was just spiraling out of control. So I'm like, at least if I focus on a project for the next six months, um, I can figure out what I want to do next after that as a business. But I'll just focus on this. And uh, as I may mention, I mean, um, conventional methods, you know, conventional results. The event was because I didn't know the rules, I guess, of how to put it on an event. It was very unconventional. And that was kind of one of the core reasons it was so successful. So we decided to do a second one to prove that the first one wasn't a fluke. And we just did our fifth one in Carmel uh, last year. And our next one is in September at Park City, uh, which will be MMT number six. So um, that's how I officially got into the, in the event business. For anyone listening that wants to, and this is how uh, one of my other friends did, and this may, may have been you, but how do you go from person like me who doesn't know a Branson or a Tim Ferriss and how do you get them to ultimately show up at your first event? Um, Tim Ferriss, 
how did you curate that relationship? Was that one of his buy 50,000 of my books and you get a speaking a gig or? Yeah. So um, I met him. I went to an event that he did called Opening the Kimono in 2011, which was an event geared towards authors who wanted to become New York Times bestselling authors. And I never had the intention of ever becoming an author, but it was $10,000 to go for two days. And I'm like, at $10,000 bound to be some interesting people there. Um, and that was, I mean, in full context, I mean, that, that was 20 times more than I've ever spent for an event. Like, you know, my peers at the time were like, you'll never see the return on your investment and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just had a strong gut feeling about it. And that's where I connected with Tim and forged relationships with a lot of just you know, like fairly big name people like Ryan Holiday and Ramit Sethi and Tucker Max and Neil Strauss and, uh, Lewis Howes, like all these people were at the event. And I mean, one of my philosophies on relationship building is, Yes. I mean, most people, when they look at relationships, they want to connect with the Tim Ferriss's of the world or the Richard Branson's or those kind of things, but it's noisy at the top, right? And the best time to build a relationship with Tim Ferriss is not now, it was in 2007 uh, or, you know, even 2008 or whatever the case may be when he was coming out with the, the four-hour work week. And um, the people I met at that event, like I met Ryan Holiday, who's, I think it's, you know, he's written four incredible books and has a great blog and really well-known guy. Um, you know, back then he, he was not an author. He was an 18 year old kid at the back of the room. So I always say like, you know, amazing people become increasingly amazing over time. So how can you find those diamonds in the rough and invest in those people kind of early on? Um, cause it's significantly easier to make relationships with people who are on the up, who are up and comers versus trying to build relationships with, with big names. Um, so ultimately with Tim went to that event uh, and then, yes, we, he was coming out with a book called uh, The 4-Hour Chef and how what happened was three weeks before the book launched, um, he was he found out that he was going to be banned from all retail distribution. So Walmart, Barnes & Noble, everything. And uh, obviously, he had two New York Times bestsellers at the time for a work week for a body. And the expectation is that the third book is going to be a bestseller as well. Um so he had to think fast on his feet from a marketing perspective. And he's a really, really smart marketer. So he created these book bundles that if you bought, um, you know, five books, you get additional resources. If you bought 25 books, you get um, maybe a webinar or something. He had this Hail, he had this Hail Mary package that if you bought 4,000 books, he'd do two speaking engagements. And at the time when I saw it, I was one of the first people to see this offer. I thought of a friend of mine named Scott who does these big events in Toronto or actually in Canada called The Art Of. And I'm like, dude, you can take advantage of this because you can easily move the books because you have a couple thousand people that show up at your event. Um, and Tim's never spoken in Canada. And the minute I click send on that email, I say, you know, this is a great opportunity for anybody. So I messaged him directly and I said, I'll, I'll take the package. Um, problem was I had to come up with the money, like $84,000 us. I had to come up with, uh, that money in like 72 hours, which was problematic. Cause again, I, I didn't know how I was going to make rent, uh, the following month. So, I uh, ended up reaching out to three friends. The first one said, um, you know, this sounds great. Let's talk numbers and come back to me with numbers. I'm like, this is an industry I don't know. Um, and I'm not an, like, I'm, as an entrepreneur, I'm not a, not a numbers thinker. Like I do big, real quick numbers to make, see if it makes sense, but then I follow my gut. So I'm like, this is probably not going to work. The second person I called said, it sounds awesome. Let's start a business together, 50-50. And I'm like, that sounds great. Uh, then I said, I have one more person to call. Let me loop back with you. Third person said, come to my office tomorrow morning, pick up a check. Uh, didn't question at all. We didn't talk about repayment terms. Didn't really ask much about the business. And I didn't, I didn't keep him on the phone much longer. As soon as he said that, I, I hung up, following morning, picked up that check. I sent it to Tim. 
And, um, you know, a few months later, Mastermind Talks was this big success. And after the event, a few months, a few weeks after that, I reached back out to that friend who gave me that $84,000. And I said, um, why'd you give me the money? Because on paper, it's like the riskiest investment you can make. I'm a 26 year old, 27 years old, quarter million dollars in debt. Um, you know, this is an industry I have no experience in. It's a business idea that's only a few hours old. And he said, something I'll never forget. He said, I wasn't investing in the business. I was investing in you. And at that point in time, two things became very clear. One is that you never know the value of your, your network until you really need it. And the second thing is, is when you hit rock bottom in life, and we all hit rock bottom at some point in time, you're really left with two things. One is your word and the integrity of your word. And the second thing is your relationships. So never tarnish your word and always invest in your relationships. Um, and that's what I've continued to do for the last four or five years. And you've, You've built in, okay, so you started meeting some really high-level people over the last four years, and you, by default, have a good platform to stay, to curate those relationships because of MMT and just your network and how you go about stuff. What I struggle with is I, um, I took your same philosophy of, well, if I spend, say, 10K on an event, you're going to meet some interesting people. So I started... Um, I've been to like 15 different conferences in the last two years. And the ones I got the most value relationship wise out of were always the high ticket numbers. Like I've paid uh, $5,000 for an event two times and I had paid 6,500 for maybe bathwater. And yeah, right. And so my thing is like, okay, cool. So you spend that money, but if I don't have an MMT to bring these guys back to, how can I stay in contact with people and make sure that those relationships don't go stale. Mm. And, and the reason I ask this is because we, I just had like a few of my clients were at CES in Vegas. It's the largest consumer uh, goods show in uh, North America or something. And they are they're like, cool. I met all these press contacts, but I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to start fostering these relationships. And I, I feel that that is something that people do struggle with. And I'm curious, like, what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. So oddly enough, that, that one event in 2011, um, there was a hundred and 27 people in attendance. I made this, I came to this, this realization recently. There's 127 people in, this, in attendance. So it happened at this point in time, seven years ago, 127 people in attendance, 48 people. Um, I've somewhat stayed in touch with, I'm friendly with meaning I can reach out to them. And, you know, if I need feedback or an introduction, it, I can make it happen. Um, eight of those people are some are like my best friends, like absolute best friends. Um, and again, that's from an event from, from seven years ago. So, um, there's definitely ways to nurture those said relationships and you're right. I mean, I'm very blessed that like the work that I do, uh, overlaps with, um, did you hear that? <laughs> uh, sorry. sorry, my dog's scratching at the door. So oh, okay. <laughs> welcome to New York. This is like, I've done a couple of interviews in New York over the last couple of days. And it's like, the city is like either always on fire, there's fire trucks everywhere, or there's always construction going on. You know what? We don't edit the podcast. And I think that this is, I love this because it's like, oh, this is really life, right? Yeah, no, 100%. And if you're able to like identify, that's the biggest thing. Because like when music, like when something goes off like this and people are like, what's that noise? At least we're going to identify, give you the setting. I'm in a breather space in New York, uh, which is a beautiful space, but it looks like somebody's doing construction right outside our back door. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, so um I mean, there's a couple of things that I did. So after that event was done, six months later, I followed up with, I think it was about 60 or 70 people with a video. 
uh, personalized video and just say, hey, it was great to connect with you a couple months ago. And this can be done a couple weeks after the event, but I did a couple months. Um, and I actually wrapped it around like New Year's and said like, hey, if you need any, if I could support you with anything in 2012 back then, um, please let me know. But I did these personalized videos. And there's a saying uh, from a book called 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing that what works in the military works in marketing and that's the unexpected. Um, so receiving, I mean, you know, depending on who you're reaching out to, they may receive a couple hundred emails a day, uh, but probably don't receive too many video emails. So if you were to do a video email, it kind of really stands out. Um, and then just like, for me, it's, it's touching base. Like what relationships does, if you're investing time, it, it's not something that you can easily do just passively. Um, and even like looking at the relationships I have, again, some of the, my favorite people, I do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the relationships. It's me reaching out and say, Hey, it's been a while since we spoke, let's do a phone call. And they're all just, they're all for it. I mean, these are my best friends, but they're also busy in the work that they do. So, um, it requires me to kind of initiate those touch points, whether that be in person, over the phone, those kind of things. And I'm always trying to get a clear understanding of where people are, where they want to go and the obstacles that are, are keeping them from, from uh, achieving those goals and always trying to eliminate or alleviate those obstacles through introductions and, and those kind of things. So, um, you know, if you have somebody in, in the media, um, I, you know, a great way to be of value to them is, is putting interesting people on their radar. Saul Orwell does a really great job with this. I mean, this is how he's built a, a really strong relationship with Jason Pfeiffer from Entrepreneur uh, Magazine and talking to Jason. I mean, Jason is a huge fan of Saul um, because, and they only met a year ago. Um, but, and Jason, when I met him uh, a couple months ago, he didn't know that I knew Saul, but he brought him up in conversation and was just saying, yeah, like I met this guy a year ago and he's been sending me all these great leads for great stories and great entrepreneurs and all this kind of stuff. Um, so Saul's a great example of somebody who, who leverages that really well. Again, getting clear understanding of, of what's of value to, to a certain individual and then delivering on that value in spades. I love that. Uh, can you hold on a second? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so in practice, for someone like me that I hear, oh, of course, send videos and, and you know, every so often get someone on the phone, see how you can help them pay it forward and stuff. But I might get lost over, and I guess that's the intention because it's January now of improving my network, but <laughs> without tangible goals behind that or action steps, I may not do it. So I'm curious, like, do you just do it ad hoc or do you say every quarter I want to reach out to X amount of people or? Yeah. Um, I mean, a couple of things. So one is the importance of prioritizing um, relationships. Um, you know, Peter Drucker said there's nothing quite so useless as doing with great efficiency, something that shouldn't be done at all. And we all have a limited amount of bandwidth. Um, you know, I look at almost for the old, like the video gamers out there, like I look at like every day you wake up, you have this like life bar. Um, and every time you send an email or have an interaction with somebody, it takes away chunks out of that life bar. Um, so you need to ensure that you're investing those, that, that energy or bandwidth, um, into, great relationships um, and not just with anyone. And this is also a trap that I've fall, fallen into recently. I'm pretty accessible, almost too accessible. So like, you know, people who've read my book or podcast listeners or heard about me, they reach out to me. I'll, I'll, I'll oftentimes, yeah, I'll reply and I'm super grateful and all that kind of stuff. However, um, there's an opportunity cost there. If I say yes to somebody I don't know who's reaching out, I'm saying no on some level to somebody who I really want to invest uh, my bandwidth and that time into the relationship. So the first thing is really prioritization. 
Um, and then the second thing is really building a practice. Um, like for me, uh, it, I mean, it could be something like, you know, you, you do, I, I met a guy yesterday, two days ago, uh, named Chris Winfield. And his thing was to create, uh, to, to meet somebody new in person. Um, I don't know if it was new in person, but meet somebody in person every day. And has done that for the last like four years without skipping a beat, apparently. Um, so, I mean, that's a practice he's, uh, he's created. For me, it's every Sunday morning. I spend probably an hour or two going through uh, my, my email, uh, updating my, my CRM um, based off that. And it'll kind of remind me to like reach out to certain individuals or check in with people or those kind of things. Um, also I have a lot of reminders. So for example, you know, I was at a dinner two months ago and there was a guy named Ron at that dinner in Toronto. And he told me that he has, he's having his first child, um, in mid January. So I set a reminder to follow up with him like first week of February and see like how the first few weeks of fatherhood are, uh, and those kind of things. So I'm always doing things like that because the, uh, one of the, the ways that people, this make a big mistake when it comes to relationship building is they uh focus on they they do uh they check in um but they check in like hey it's been a while since we spoke like what's new in your world and i get those emails and i'm like i don't have time to fill like fill you in like look at facebook you know what i mean like there has to be something contextual with that follow-up um and there's cues on like things you can follow up with all the time whether it be oh this you know so-and-so is going to should be selling his business in the next six months or so-and-so is having a child in the next like three months or, or those are, you know, somebody's working on a book and wants to, for it to come out towards the end of the year. So you can easily set a reminder to follow up with them, you know, in October and see how the book's coming along. Um, so those are like contextual follow-ups, which are these little kind of investment touch points into the relationship. Um, but yeah, ultimately creating a practice that works well for you because what works for me won't necessarily work for you. Um, so it's for me, it's every Sunday morning investing a couple hours in those those check-ins and, and those kind of things. And um and yeah, that's 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 where I kind of invest uh, the majority of my time to focus on relationships. Yeah. Sunday is my favorite day for work. Mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> just, I'm actually I'm I'm starting to play with different um because I if I try to get myself to work nine to five Monday to Friday, just I'll do it for a week and then just I hate it. Sure. Um, so I'm like I'm wondering if I should even shift my, most of my work over to weekends because it's, I love my clients to death, but doing the Saturday, Sunday where people aren't, um, they're off yeah. means that I could be on with other things and really present with the higher level planning. Absolutely. Things. Yeah. And, um, I'm wondering if Sol Orwell, he brings a moleskin to every dinner and he always will ask the question, what are you looking for right now? And so with you having a CRM in place and seeing like the, mm. the how to master that and how to follow up with that, I'm going to combine those because for me, I'm like, how do I keep track of like, you know, you, how do you action something like that? Where like Jason, if I know you are looking for a keynote speaker, someone who's never spoken at MMT before, I might mm. now put that in a CRM with the follow-up note so that anytime I think of someone comes to mind, Jason, who is that? Who is looking for this person? Boom, right? What, what was the question that Saul asked? Saul, he asks, um, "What? It's either what is something you need right now, or what is something that, like, yeah, what do you need right now?" And so we we had dinner a few nights ago, and he was 
went around round table and uh, Amanda Bond was saying, I'm looking for more speaking engagements more in North America to talk about this framework that I have. Um, I was, I said the same thing and someone else was like, I'm looking for fitness influencers for my podcast. Um, and so he, he asked that question and then he connects everyone, but by putting that ask around the table, it's not how he can connect you with one-on-one it's more as a group like you know if amanda bond says i'm looking for speaking gigs someone who is on the national speakers council might be at that dinner and say amanda let me help you with that yeah right it's putting that intention out there yeah absolutely yeah no it works great i mean one of the the go-to question i've kind of discovered and pieced together which does a really good job because sometimes when somebody asks me like how uh, what's something you need help with, it's almost hard to depending on the setting of like how vulnerable people are willing to get, it can be a little difficult. Um, and the quality of your questions will determine the quality of your answers. So I've I've, I've messed around with different formats of like asking people this. Um, and what has worked exceptionally well for me is is two questions. One is, and it also you need to have rapport. Like these questions are they're malleable based on like how much rapport you have with that person. Mm-hmm. number one is if we were to meet a year from today with a bottle of champagne what are we celebrating um which is very kind of forward focused instead of like saying hey what's holding you back right now or what's a pain point a lot of people ask that like what's yeah what's a pain point in your business or life and you're like i don't know i don't even know you and i don't even know why i'm going to share that and even like you, you, your mind goes in a different place as opposed to you say like what what are you focusing on or what's a champagne moment in in a year um it's like an exciting question um, so when they give you that answer, so let's say it's, you know, I want to, I'm writing a book and I, I want to hit New York times. Um, so the follow-up to that, and this is the gold is in order to achieve that, what is something that you need to solve or overcome? And, um, it's usually very easy for them to identify something they need to overcome. Cause it comes again from a different mindset. It doesn't come from like, it's something holding them back. It's something they need to overcome and achieve. Um, mm-hmm. I'm from like a positive space so it's usually really easy to find out where people want to go and what's holding them back or what's an obstacle by framing those two questions i love that because instead of like hey what do you need help with yeah no it's really narrowing down the scope of the question and if you ask what do you want okay i want to be a speaker great what is the one thing holding you back that's really asking that next layer of question is is the obstacle. And that's how you can uncover exactly how they need the help or what they're struggling with around that. Yeah. Yeah. You're fishing for those responses and those answers without putting them on the spot. Yeah. If somebody comes up to me and says like, Hey, but in the earth, I get this happen all the time, early conversations, like how can I support you? Or, um, or again, like what's something holding you back in your business or something like that? I don't like, know everything. Like it's hard to it's, it's just it's a hard thing to answer from you're in a weird state, you're in a weird position. Um, for me, preparing those two questions together, I usually get great, great answers to that are actionable for me to kind of support them. I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna steal that. Um, <laughs> I do I think I do a fairly decent job on the podcast of asking specific questions because like I I do that's a podcaster trick where if you want to get a conversational hack, like if you just want to really get under the surface, you have to be asking what is the number one thing holding you back or, you know, very specific questions to help draw out those thoughts. Um, but I don't, I don't think I do that very well in actual conversations. So, um, or I think I can at least help, uh, you know, as a consultant, I'll get on sales calls and, 
I don't ask what is the number one thing holding you back because they're ultimately coming to me and I make the assumption um, or whatnot. So I think that's really great practice that I'm going to take away from this. Beautiful. There you go. <laughs> I love this. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up with one last question. Sure. What is there something I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh God. Um, actually, the one thing I wrote it down. Um, you kind of made mention or uh, early on about um, like this is a little bit of a different, unique interview because it's about relationships and that doesn't tie to Kickstarter necessarily. And I actually, uh, I don't say I disagree. Um, but like the one thing I've realized between a lot of successful Kickstarters, um, and you, you may disagree with this, so I'm totally willing to be challenged on it, but like the importance of like your thousand true fans, um, like Kim and Kelly has a philosophy that if you have a thousand true fans, um, and you're artists uh, of any kind, whether that be, um, you know, traditional art or musician or magician or whatever the case may be, you can have a most likely a comfortable business or comfortable kind of lifestyle. Um, and the, I always say it doesn't matter how many friends you can count. It matters how many friends you can count on. And the same thing with like customer, it doesn't matter how many customers you have. It matters how many customers you can count on. And one of the things I use to demonstrate that I don't have the figures in front of me, but Kickstarter is a very, it's very transparent with their statistics, the amount of projects launched, the amount of projects funded, the amount of backers, all that kind of stuff. The funny thing is, is if you run the numbers, and this has not changed all that much over the years, is if you look at the, the like when you think of Kickstarters, you think of the big ones, right? You think of like exploding kittens and you think of the coolest cooler and all this kind of stuff. Um, campaigns that have like 60, 70,000 backers. Um, but the funny thing is, is when you look at the data, um, when you look at like the, the, you take the amount of successful campaigns and the amount of backers that it took to, to fund those successful campaigns, uh, over the years, it's basically been about 100 to 103 backers um, per successful campaign. Um, so that's a small group of people in order to kind of uh, fund your dream on some level. Um, and oftentimes those, those, those first backers are from relationships. I mean, they'll come from media and all that kind of stuff later once you get that momentum. Um, but, you know, we're all in the relationship business on some level. So mm-hmm. if you're not focused on building relationships now, and it's, whether it's people building relationships so that, you know, if you do a Kickstarter, maybe they'll buy the product or they'll just support it by sharing it on social media and all that kind of stuff, which will give it kind of legs. Um, but, we, should, yeah, I, I don't care what industry you're in. Um, I've seen it time and time again. We're all in the relationship business. And, again, mm-hmm. you don't want to be in a position where, uh, you're making an ask from your network or your community or your clients um, without having invested in those relationships first. You brought up, when you first said, uh, I'm going to bring up something that, and you can challenge it. I didn't realize that I had maybe come across earlier this interview in networking and Kickstarter aren't relevant. So I'd like to change my stance on that. Cause I just had a realization here. <laughs> um, we, because my focus with our one-on-one clients are six figure plus, we tend to look at getting thousands of backers, which means our sure. focus is building an email list and those press relationships. But I hadn't ever looked at how, look at right in front of you with how can you you curate? Cause like over half our listeners are people that just want to raise 10, 20, $30,000. And the, the threshold for that is one to 200 backers, which is at the, your, um, arms, like length marketing, um, yeah. style. And you bring up a very valid point that I actually don't, um, 
focus to do much on that. And I, I have to say that I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. And thank you for bringing that up because a lot of times people can look at this crowdfunding thing, like, wow, exploding kittens had over 17,000 backers. Like how, how am I supposed to compete with that? I don't have a big budget. So I'm just going to say, screw it to this market, like to my product idea, because I don't know, like just the internet makes everything seem so much bigger and better than it actually is. And sometimes you really just have to distill the basic principle of how do you get your thousand true fans? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good point. <laughs> well, that, I, mean, I, I totally yeah. understand why that would be, uh, you'd overlook that because you serve people who want to do like bigger launches and all that kind of stuff. And most definitely. I mean, I serve, you know, high level entrepreneurs. I, I run into that kind of same issue where I, I, I create biases or bubbles, I guess. Um, but uh, be, again, this beautiful thing about uh, Kickstarter is the statistics behind it. And it's uh, to me, it, it was, I was shocked to find out that the average, uh, the average campaign has a hundred backers. Um, so, yeah. Um, guys, if you're wondering where he got all these stats from, I'm not sure about the article or whatnot, but Kickstarter has a beautiful stats page that if you're a numbers nerd, they have a breakdown of all of their campaigns, percentage, uh, funded by category, average size, all that. So I'll put a link to that in, uh, in the show notes where you can just Google Kickstarter stats page and it should come up as well. That's it. And you can hear my dog going crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Jason, this has been awesome. Um, for anyone that wants to learn more about your work, uh, community made podcast and all the things like where's a good spot to send them. Yeah. So communitymade.com is a link to the podcast where basically, um, we have seasons that are themed. Um, so season one was all about scaling business. Season two is all about business relationships. Um, so that's communitymade.com and I'm on all the old school social media platforms. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook at Jason Gaynard, J-A-Y-S-O-N, G-A-I-G-N-A-R-D. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and I'm excited to see you next week at the dinner. I will see you then. Okay, so if you want access to, not access, but if you just want to see and listen to uh, EJ's episode as well as Jason's, you can see the show notes and everything at crowdfundinguncut.com. And what I was just thinking is we have the five-minute journal and mastermind talks, which are two companies that became successful because they were just a great product. I think um, that's really important to to note that if even if you have a big advertising spend and stuff, you can buy your list and build your audience by spending a ton of money. But at the end of the day, it's very difficult to create something that people love and will organically share with their audience. That is truly the the heart and the root of a successful company. Or when you're looking at that first product launch, it you know, it's how can we make money with this? And just be careful to uh, spend a bunch of money developing an email list without doing the basic product testing and creating something that people truly love. Um, and anyways, that's just something I, I had in mind is like as a recap to this. So um, again, if you, it's all the things um, you want to download the field guide, go to crowdfundinguncut.com. If you want to ask me a question, you can email me directly, letter K at crowdfundinguncut.com. Good luck spelling my name. Uh, my mother gave it to me. There's a Y and an H and it's just confusing. So um, I am K at crowdfundinguncut.com. We'll talk to you next week. If you're wondering what that is in the background, it's my dog scratching at the door. 
Gotta love puppy life. Anyways, see you later. Bye. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launch pad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step -step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launch pad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launch pad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.